From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. You're about to listen to our new show, The Groundsman Conversations, which is brought to you by Sports Digiter. Sports Digiter is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders, agencies, and brands that brings your story to life within immersive, exciting, easy-to-create proposals and presentations. Used by more than 50% of teams in the top leagues in the US, Sports Digiter's technology enables partners to ditch PowerPoint and Keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting, cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigital.com to book your demo. And a very warm welcome to the Groundsman Conversations. Well, I say groundsmen, it's not actually true. This week, Roger and Grant, for various personal reasons, have had to bow to the show, which makes this technically groundsperson conversation, but oh, bollocks, it's the groundsman. And it's a really special time of the year. The nights are are drawing in. It gets colder and obviously wetter. There's a smell of fireworks in the air, thanks to our continued abeyance of the celebrating of the 5th of November and the thwarting of the gunpowder plot and the grisly execution of Guy Fawkes. Kids are jumping in puddles and dogs are covered in mud generally. And most importantly of all, it means it's Rugby's Autumn Internationals, which are in full swing, meaning wall-to-wall telly for the whole of the weekends right up until the Christmas rush. This week, I'm calling the show Rugby Special, which is a bit of a knockoff from BBC Two in the 1980s, because I want to rake up the leaves on my own, um, largely about the sport of rugby union, which is, I think, arguably one of the greatest little international sports in the world. And along with golf, is a sport I have a lot of personal and previous experience with. During my time at HSBC, we sponsored two Lions tours, uh, the Asia Five Nations, the World Rugby Sevens, and one of the very few sponsors ever to have got turned down by the Six Nations, which still smarts not to be able to have sponsored that fine, fine tournament. But at this time of year, right now, you could be persuaded that all was fine and dandy in the rugby union orchard. Right now, the top 12 teams in the world from the North and South Hemisphere, men's teams, they're playing in a series of sellout internationals in London, Paris, Edinburgh, Dublin, Cardiff, Rome and Paris. It doesn't really get any better. And the crowds are there. But also down in New Zealand right now, the Black Ferns are doing battle with the England Red Roses this weekend and the World Cup final in Eden Park in front of a crowd of, it's estimated at 40,000 fans, which will be the biggest ever live audience for women's rugby. Brilliant. In Hong Kong, last weekend, there was a return of the Hong Kong Sevens, which is undoubtedly the greatest carnival and the greatest party. And seeing the pictures coming back from Hong Kong, it looked like one hell of an event. This is a sport that is so spoiled with the riches of a demographic that probably only golf can match establishment people love rugger, as they might call it. This is a sport that sponsors have been historically jumping over themselves to try and reach. 
It's a sport that is just furnished in so much tradition and an esprit de corps in a unique way of people bashing the hell out of each other for 80 minutes and then having a beer and being friends for life. It's pretty hard to beat. Just, it's a community that if you love rugby, you adore rugby. It's also managed, and slightly under the radar, managed to woo the blazers of the International Olympic Committee and voted into the Olympic family, a journey that started in 2016, to be part of the biggest circus of sport in the world. You could say that rugby has got it all. And then if you add into the equation that it even had a short form in seven-a-side rugby that has been part of the, the family for 130 years, unlike 2020 cricket that's perhaps voted 20, 25 years. And most encouraging of all, particularly for parents, and for people who are, I hope, progressive, the women's game in both 15-a-side and 7-a-side has been growing exponentially. It sounds perfect. But, and there is always a but, I wonder that despite all of this, maybe there is something rotten in the state of Denmark. Most recently in the UK, and England particularly, two of the premiership clubs, Worcester, and one of the most beloved clubs of all, Wasps, have gone into administration, which is a very distressing time, obviously for the fan, but most particularly for the players and for those supported and employed by the club. But there are other issues that cast a shadow on the sport that I personally consider to be the greatest contact sport in the world. Maybe most fundamentally, there are the challenges as to the safety and welfare of players. It's a dangerous game. And as players get fitter and stronger, it becomes more so. And that has a knock-on effect, not just for the players and, and the tales of dementia and players who've gone through absolute agony over the years. And it's, that's, again, distressing to see. But it starts to put parents off. Do you want your son or daughter to play a game that has got some fundamental problems? And World Rugby, the governing body, have moved heaven and earth to try and address it. But it's difficult. It's a contact sport. It's a collision sport. And this is something that rugby has to face up to. It's also been a professional sport really only since 1995, which is relatively new. And yet the governance of the sport, made up of the international governing body, World Rugby, International Rugby Board, as it used to be called, the unions who are all members of the game. And it's pretty antiquated. And the crossover and board conflicts mean that it's a sport that is often fighting amongst itself. It was set up for a different era. And like many sports, it relies on really the holy trinity of money, television money, ticketing of fans, and the largesse of sponsors. Well, in a sport that looks big, but actually isn't as big as, say, sports like cricket, where they have the Indian market, the television money in, in rugby is not huge. And right now, as we've discussed a lot on Are You Not Entertained, the television media world is facing quite a lot of headwinds. There are challenges in the commercial model. That is going to have a backlash on rugby union. Other than the big internationals, which are astonishing sellouts and people want to go, the stadia aren't that big. The revenue from ticketing isn't as big and doesn't yield the massive income, say, from football that you would see in Europe and in other parts, and certainly in NFL and, and other sports within the States. But the other problem is that the international ticket, if you're lucky enough to go to Twickenham or Cardiff or Edinburgh or any of these places, the cost is huge. As an example, England, New Zealand, on the 19th of November, 
Main ticket, 174 quid a person. A pint at around about seven or eight quid a pint. If you start to do the maths of that, particularly in an economy that in the UK and certainly in the Northern Hemisphere is shrinking, that's a lot of outlay. And that's expensive. That's going to have a a profound effect, a knock-on effect. And then you've got the ongoing problem that sponsors face is whilst they love the demographic, they are worried about the uh, injury uh, concerns around rugby union, which means that there's a risk involved and sponsors are loath to take risk, particularly in a world of governance. So I'm trying to paint a, a balanced picture of a game that has both got so much but it has quite a lot to address. And with Roger and Grant not um, able to join us, I thought I would ask maybe the most qualified person I know to join me to rate the, the leaves of rugby and share with us his own vision for getting rugby back on the right track. Simon Halliday, he's in a former investment banker, stockbroker, and a, a general finance boy who also happened to play 25 times for England, including taking part in the 99 Uh, Rugby World Cup final for England. He also won the Pilkington Cup, which is the Rugby Union Cup in England, with the magnificent Bath 15 five times in the 1980s and with Harlequins uh, on one occasion. He's also got a brain. He uh, won three Blues for Oxford between 1979 and 1981, where he also found time to read classics and modern languages. When he hung up his boots, he found his own time to coach Isha, Harlequins, and was a council member of the Rugby Football Union. He was a Lions selector in 2001. He played for and very much part of the Barbarians setup, and for seven years was chairman of the European Professional Club Rugby. But best of all, he's the CEO of the Sporting Wine Club, and having sampled a fair bit of their portfolio, it's well worth joining this club if wine is your thing. So let's get him on the show and, and kick the tyres of rugby. Simon Halliday, a very warm welcome to Are You Not Entertained? How good to, good to have you on the show. Great to be here. Brilliant, Charles. Well, we're normally we're talking over a, a glass of wine with your very fine um, sort of sporting wine club. So for once, we're a sort of, not, we're, I've just got a cup of tea. I think you've got a mug of tea. So this is very different for us. Well, that's okay. You know, it's after a long weekend of rugby. I'm sure a few glasses were uh, consumed both Saturday and Sunday. Well, I I sport Wales and I was pretty depressed, I have to say, after that. The All Blacks gave Wales a pretty good drubbing. Simon, I wanted to um, bring you on. This is what I'm calling Rugby Special, which is obviously a direct crib from 1980s television and uh, BBC's great flagship rugby sport. But... There's a lot going which, on. In which the... I appeared on. Did you? I was on Rugby Special. Well, as a presenter, were you really? As a presenter, yeah. Was that when Starmers was off on holiday or how did that work? Or were you... I, no, I was the only Englishman on a cast of... There was uh, Chris Ray, remember? Yeah, I do. Uh, Eddie Butler, dear Eddie. Yeah. Um, and uh, John Jeffrey. Good Lord. Uh, often Ian Robertson. And I used to get messages of people saying, so, come on, put you know the the only Englishman on the uh, on the panel. You've got to... <laughs> but I hold your own. It's difficult. I'm sure you. Did. I'm sure you did, Simon. You're a former England international. You're a great club man for for Bath and for Harlequins and a number of other clubs. But before we get into the guts of this, which is to talk about where rugby is today, you're a rugby man through and through. Where did the spark get lit for you as a young boy? Before it turned out that you had obviously a great talent for the game. Where did it all start? My father was in the Fleet Air Arm, which, if you're a forces. Uh, family then 
you know, you spend time abroad and you're moving around every two, three years and very difficult for parents, I guess, to know what to do with kids. But so we got placed in, uh, in boarding school. Myself and my brother, age seven, were pushed off to uh, a school in Hertfordshire, um, called St. Hughes. It's a Catholic boarding school. And, uh, I was very, very small. Uh, but I loved all sport and, uh, you know, I, I took up rugby because you had to do it, you know, but I enjoyed it. I then went to another prep school because my, my parents went abroad to Turkey for four years and I couldn't stay at this other one for various reasons. So I ended up in Moor Park School, Ludlow, where the two headmasters, Derek Henderson and Hugh Watts, were absolute sports fanatics. And so I played every sport I could at all available times. And I suppose it went from there. Downside was a, Strong rugby school, 600 boys, very strong circuit. Uh, I wasn't particularly good, actually. Um, I, I appeared in the first 15, but I, I, cricket was my sport in those days. And it wasn't until Oxford when a certain Nick Mallet kind of faced me down as a mature student and I was in, we were in the same varsity team. At least I was trying to get into it. And he kind of told me to take myself seriously because I was just a typical student not paying too much attention, um, but enjoying it. And he just said, no, you, you've got it. I've seen you, you know, you need to, and everyone needs that person, you know, to suddenly grip you and push you along the way. And uh, that's what happened to me. So so do you think you had a, a, a talent that even at school, you just, was this just sort of um, not bothering, not trying very hard until, but I mean, that's a huge talent. You went on to play for your country and played many, many times. I mean, that's that's huge talent to not even recognise it in yourself. Well, I think I I, I, lo- I love doing it. I just wasn't, you know, as a schoolboy, you measure yourself against whether the others are better than you are. That's just that's just the fact. And but then when you got to Oxford, had you grown a bit then, and so physically you were up to the up to the task? Had something changed? Well, I think so. And also, you need a bit of luck. So, my first night in college, I sat opposite um, Edward Quistarton, um, a Ghanaian. Um, winger, uh, sadly passed away. One of my great friends and uh, became one of my great friends. He had a, he had an Oxford crest on his jersey, and I, you know, making polite conversation. Where does that come from? He said, "Well, I'm an Oxford blue." At which point, you know, uh, that was a heroic thing in my mind as a schoolboy. And uh, he said, "Well, do you play rugby?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, I played for first team at Downside." So he said, "Well, come down for trial." I mean, that was scary, but I agreed. And he said, no issue. So I met Tony Watkinson, who was the then captain, who's become a very good friend. And he remembers of looking me up and down and going, okay, well, we'll put you in the freshman's team. But, you know, had I not met Eddie, he probably, I probably would never have gone, had the courage to go down there. And it, you just meet people along the way. And what happened to your cricket career? I know, I, I know you were a very handy cricketer and you've mentioned that. What, do you think you would have, and you look back at it, would you like to have uh, played cricket for England more than played rugby for England, but that didn't happen? Or was that, again, luck going the other direction? Well, as I went to Oxford, the the bet was I would get a cricket blue, not a rugby blue. Um, and I actually got both. But the, the, the cricket, you know, they, they judge you a bit earlier. I, I played most of my shots through the leg side, which Viv Richards would say, what's wrong with that? But in those days, people wanted to see you play straight. And, um, and of course, when I became uh, a rugby, somebody getting selected for rugby teams, the cricketer said, well, you can't do both, or at least the head of cricket said you can't do both. And, um, and I suppose I just got slightly pushed out of it. And, and even though uh, I performed perfectly well and played 
stayed for Dorset for eight years afterwards. Um, that was probably where I needed to go because at age 21, my rugby career was taking off and it was pretty tricky to do both. Yeah, and just having on that time. So fast forward now, we, we, we look at the, the two sports that you've excelled at as a young man. You've got on one hand cricket, which has got, uh, has exploded really with maybe, um, ex- exploiting maybe the wrong word, at last IPL has taken Indian cricket into the dominance that one always knew was going to happen at some point. You've got a billion odd people who are avid fans and IPL is growing. 2020 cricket is attracting the youth. It's becoming a a very, very big sport. I think the second biggest league in the world after the Premier League. You then have, on, on the other hand, Rugby Union, which is, like cricket, absolutely stuffed full of tradition, amazing demographic um, of of sort of upmarket moneyed classes that traditionally have brought in great sponsors. And in the time since you were playing, there's been World Cup that's grown and grown and grown. There's been the growth of European rugby, which you've been enormously involved with in your administration part of your career. And it's a sport that has produced many, many heroes and it's exciting, explosive, and it's grown the women's game. And it's part of the Olympics. And I said all of this in the intro, it all looks brilliant. And yet there are question marks about fundamentally about where rugby is going and what its future is. That's a lot to unpick. But I'm just interested, if you were to give a state of the nation right now, where do you think rugby is? Yeah, that's, uh, wow, that's quite a big, uh, big set of topics. I think, first of all, dealing with uh, the comparison to cricket and IPL, et cetera, and the shorter form of cricket versus the shorter form of rugby, because you could argue that, you know, whether it be the Hong Kong Sevens uh, or any Sevens tournament, or, or indeed the Tens, which has been talked about, or the Twelves, which was mooted yeah. and then kind of kicked out, um, is that the shorter form is seen as sort of modest entertainment, but that's it. And it's never going to catch. It's this way to kick the start of the game. You know, it's the way you grow the game across all the nations because you only need seven, if you like. And then you can play touch, of course, and, and just, just to play with the oval ball. And a lot of that's going on. That's why the game is growing absolutely everywhere exponentially. If you look at Spain, uh, the Spanish sevens team beat the All Blacks. The 15 aside would have qualified for the World Cup, but they played somebody incorrectly registered and getting kicked out, which yeah, is a shame, right. actually. Yes. But so so the, the 15s followed, but the sevens isn't a route to the 15th side. So I don't actually think you can make the comparison of the two sports. It's just whereas short form cricket ex- exists in an absolute way and is growing and is going to keep growing. I just don't think rugby can go that way, I have to say. Mm-hmm. But so that's the first point. I think that the um uh, rugby as a sport globally is growing very, very strongly. Uh, the fastest piece of that is women's rugby. And I think it's absolutely wonderful to see what's going on. And, and English rugby is leading the way in that, actually, the 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 way they're building up the leagues and investing in the game. And of course, it's quite disproportionate versus the other the other nations who, who haven't done as much investment. So you've got an imbalance at the moment, notwithstanding the final upcoming. So uh, all elements of rugby are actually growing in that segment. But then we've got the big issue right now, which is the fact that the adult game participation levels are way down in England, which that's probably not so bad elsewhere. In France, you wouldn't say so. But uh, there's other issues around the look, the physicality, um, you know, the, the rules, the way that um, get the game time is being disrupted through regulation, through um, replays and 
PMOs, etc. And I was at the NFL game a couple of weeks ago. Very interesting. Seems not to have that problem. There are plenty of stoppages, but they fill the stoppages with entertainment for the crowd. And there's a lot of communication. It's quite an interesting model to see how rugby might have to develop. Do you think that the game that you grew up with and, and you played at the top level, but it was still the game where the, the community of rugby was still... I mean, I remember this as a kid growing up. If Someone might be an international rugby player, but they were still very attached to their club and that club felt very much part of the community. Does that still exist or has that gulf now with professionalism since 95 changed the, the sport irrevocably in terms of you've got the, the amateur ethos, the, the, the spirit of the game, which is unrivaled as a sport. It's wonderful. And I think that exists and probably chugs along quite nicely. But you've been administrator at the very top of the sport. Is that connection still there? It is and it isn't. And I think professionalism had to happen. I don't I don't think you could have ever avoided it. I mean, the RFU tried to say it wasn't going to happen. And that was a major error at the time. They've never really recovered from it, in all honesty. But if you talk to, for example, the Saracens, who talked to Northampton or did any of the senior clubs, they've all got massive connection with the community. You know, they're engaged in many, many schools uh, preaching the game because they've had to take over from the schools in many ways. And, you know, they provide a lot of support to the community clubs. Uh, and they so they do have that connection. But the point is that's done in isolation. And I think where the game has failed, certainly in this country and probably in certain others as well, is that the administration of both the professional and the amateur game have become dysfunctional. And as a result, you lose the core values because everyone's seeing it from a different angle. And because you've got the same asset, i.e. a player, the player is your asset. How do you use that player, either professionally or how do you encourage that player in the amateur world? And I think the the, the last two and a half decades have been one of adversarial behavior between the two. And that's why, partly why we are at where, where we are in the English game. And where are we? I mean, we could probably spend hours just on this piece alone, but the governance was never set up for the professional game originally. You've then had new governance coming in. So everything has been, sort of been a reactive situation as European rugby grew, et cetera, et cetera. But is it fundamentally there's a structural problem that means that there can never really be consensus to move the game forward properly because you've got unintentionally colliding forces is that the problem yeah i think so i think the game the game sort of grew through the pain as it were the professional game or the pain of the fact that that uh, there wasn't enough money and it relied upon benefactors i'm talking exclusively england right now because the model in france people talk about is so different because the the state owns the ground uh, there's multiple um in, industry backers and you know take to lose have got sponsorship from airbus and peugeot which is dwarfs anything that could happen in england for example Clermont have 99 sponsors, famously, including Michelin, you know, and it's just a different ballgame. The entire city lives for the for the game. And I know this because I've had six years traveling around these clubs and meeting all of them and, and being forced into their their culture and way of life. Because when you're, you're a sole chairman on tour in France, you, you better buy into it or else uh, you're not going to have much fun. Um, but over in England, it's very different. And I think the, you know, the RFU have been fighting uh, the growth of the game professionally for many, many years. And they failed to staff it correctly to be able to to deal on the same level. So what you've had is these extremely wealthy 
owners who, oh, have they put the not just the money, but their their heart and soul into it. You know, there is nobody. Uh, Nigel Ray, for example, you know, what an incredible investment of time, money, effort, commitment, heart and soul he's put in. And there's many like him. You know, Tony Rowe would be the same for what he built Exeter into. So I have an incredible admiration for that. But well, they've done it against the background of the game not really accepting where it was going um, and not helping. And it being a constant negotiation as to how much will you pay me for the release of my player, uh, the player then gets trained into the ground, either at the club level or at the international level. They get it gets shared around like some depreciating asset, you know, and the financial person understand, you know, that you can't do that to players. Now, we've ignored that trend for many, many years. And we've developed also a set of apparently inevitable laws, which are all to do with how big people are now and how much training they do and and how physical they are. So apparently they're different. Well, I don't think so, actually. And I think that's one of the routes back to where we need to get to. And I call it back to the future, which is that, that the game I played, in fact, um, is not one that's just from a bygone era. It's the one we need to go back to. And I firmly believe that. Do you mean that talking about a game which is about it's an 80-minute game and that the, the players are required to be on the field to play for 80 minutes unless they are injured and you have fewer reserves, etc., so that, that you need a certain amount of resilience to get through it. Does that help the size issue? There, there was a wonderful moment. There weren't many wonderful moments in the England Argentina <laughs> game. But there was one ironic moment, other than Dave Flatman, which uh, applauded the fact that most of the best ball of the first half was going to the two props. That wouldn't have happened in my day, I tell you what. Um, <laughs> and it was probably the sole reason why England didn't win by 30. Anyway, come back to that. Um, but in the, the latter part of the game, they were talking about why a scrum was being penalised. And Flatman said, well, it's pretty obvious. They brought two new guys on uh, to scrummage against two guys who've been there for an hour. There's going to be a problem because these two have got incredible energy and these other two are just trying to see out the last 20. And he kind of left it there. But but one, that's dangerous. And two, that seemed to be inevitable. And I think, you know, the replacement strategy, I remember when I was playing and Bath um, were the last 20-minute team. We trained for the last 20 minutes. We trained in order to make, um, make it happen um, when everyone was tired. That was our USP. So when people would say it was 12 all at half time, how come you won 32 12? I said, pretty easy because we trained for the last 20. But if you bring on the replacement who is fit and ready to go, and you played an hour and you, you, you've created the environment to take down the person opposite because you've worked on him for an hour, but that, that diminishes the game in my view. It also is dangerous. Uh, it, it takes up a lot of time so the crowd get bored, which is one of the major problems at the moment. Um, and that's it's not just that there there's the other issues of um how you how you deal with the uh, the physicality of the game and the, the 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 height of the tackle which just has to be changed um and it's just straight just changes i don't think there's a single person who doesn't believe that should happen so everything you've just said has made made a lot of sense and i've heard you say it before and, and i fundamentally agree with everything you're saying and yet it never seems to happen. What are the roadblocks? Why is this game not able to sort out some of the glaringly obvious things that probably every individual who's involved in the game, if you took them for a pint individually and said, 
this is what I think. They'd probably all agree. So why do things not happen? I, and, and I know rugby is not the only game to have this problem, but specifically to rugby, why can't it get out the way of itself? I think um, I've been pondering that myself over a period, and obviously I've been a rugby administrator for a number of years, uh, sometimes despite myself. But as I looked around the board table, and by the way, some unbelievably talented individuals in the world of rugby administration, and I've worked with many of them, so there's the sort of the caveat. But if you look around a table and you find that um, none of those individuals have played the game, the large majority of rugby administration have never pulled on a shirt in, in anger particularly. And that creates issues because they don't quite understand the urgency of what you're saying. And when there's process involved, and it's a business, um, you get other considerations, other committees get formed to um, to kind of consider. Uh, the de- and, or you get follow the science. Remember, the follow the science? It was kind of pandemic, SAGE committee, let's follow the science. That wasn't always right, was it? And we follow the data. So people say, well, the data is not conclusive. I said, you need data to uh, to come to these conclusions. I don't think you do, actually. So in my opinion, it's because the wrong people are sitting in the positions of authority, being shown this deterioration and refusing to believe it. And I think the boards and the recruitment consultants who brought in the, you know, when it's a business, of course, you can't have just rugby people. Of course you can't. I always say if I had to explain rugby to an alien, there'd be four types of people. There'd be the, the amateur, die in the wool, who, who sweeps the floor, pulls the beers, um, takes the car park money, and is probably the president. Those people are just absolute wonderful individuals who brought the game from where it is and have always kept those core values. Then you've got the owner who's bought the right to shout very loudly, um, who's worth a lot of money, and... Um, and has bankrolled the game in many ways. You've then got the administrators come into the game thinking rugby is a bit, kind of doesn't really know what it's doing, therefore I need to impose the business morals and ethics and line management and other other sort of aspects, which we all understand. And then you've got the ex-player. Sometimes think they know everything. Of course they don't. But ex-players who've got other perspective, they've got a role to play. They've got a voice. And if you can get the best out of all those four, then you're going to get some. At the moment, there's a massive imbalance into the administrator uh, who regards the amateur as just a bit of an antique sort of dinosaur. And no one else can really get a word, and I include the players in this. So the Players Association uh, don't get enough say in what's going on. And I think that imbalance is creating serious structural issues. And tell me, has the effect of private equity in your mind, started to play a difference. Famously, CVC have taken a good chunk in the Northern Hemisphere game and will presumably, as all private equity does, and you're an ex-finance guy, this is your language as well, they're not doing it just for the love of the game and to get the best seats in the West Stand at Twickenham or whatever. They will want their pound of flesh. There will be an exit at some point. So you've got private equity people coming in. You've got Silver Lake coming into New Zealand and it's reported to other countries. So... On, on one hand, you know that they are attracted to the demographic of the sport because it is a very attractive demographic and it's no different from my former world at HSBC. There's, it, it is not accidental that HSBC was involved in, in rugby union because of the extraordinary support base that the sport has has had traditionally. But do you see that private equity is going to stir things up even further, maybe as a fifth 
element of your wheel that may make things even harder? First of all, I agree with everything you've just said. Um, and and I, I am a, a massive fan of the the underlying growth and the demographic and all those values that, that rugby um, hold. And of course, when, when I was chairman of EPCR, CBC weren't involved anywhere. By the time I left, after six and a half years, CBC had a stake in every single stakeholder around my table other than the French. Uh, and whilst... I didn't have any direct interaction with it because EPCR was a separate business, clearly. You couldn't ignore the fact that the influence was was there. And as you say, I know I have a three decades of finance background and, and private equity didn't always have a great rap coming in to deal with certain companies. And, you know, we don't need to rehearse that necessarily. People, people who understand finance or know private equity will be looking for certain types of returns and, you know, what they leave behind sometimes you could question. Um, that's just fact, you know, whether you like it or not, that's fact. And I think I, I, I believe CBC in it for the right reasons. I, I didn't really pay attention to the Formula One, um, kind of uh, statement of, you know, what they did there. They'll do in rugby, completely different ball game. Uh, but what I think they felt, I mean, obviously I'm speculating, but from what conversations I did have, they wanted to be extremely respectful of the core values of rugby. They didn't want to come in and tell everybody what to do. Uh, they wanted to come in and provide commercial backing, help aggregate a disparate and quite fragmented sport. So far, absolutely agree. And bring some true value, because I think the feeling was that the, the various rights available, and this is you know into your world, you know, were very underappreciated and could only be pro- properly crystallized if they were brought together and aggregated. And I think that's absolutely spot on. However, I did say to them, knowing what I know about the background of administration of rugby, it's going to be very difficult for you to do that without getting involved with the people that make the decisions. Because it's got to be a sport that's that governs itself correctly. And it's not. And I think that's what they're finding. Uh, and I don't know what their current thinking is. It's not, not my job to know. But I would imagine they're saying, okay, let's keep going. I mean, everyone understands value stocks. You know, you start at a price and then you build your position at a lower price. And that's definitely where this is. So if they thought that the investments they've made have gone up in value, probably Six Nations have, to be fair, but the others might not have done. But that won't put them off because they're in for the long term, or at least for the foreseeable future. So I think they're going to have to get involved in updating the governance. And, you know, that that means people. So I, I think, you know, that's the next step for them. And it's not easy, but they're going to have to do it. Switching tack a bit, there are two areas of real potential. One you've you've already referenced, which is the growth of the women's game across both seven aside and 15 aside. And it, it really is fantastic to see the sort of crowds they're expecting this Saturday at Eden Park for the final of the Women's World Cup, I think is 40,000. That seems to be in growth and that's a good news story. The other area that people talk a lot about inevitably is rugby's potential in the USA and Major League Rugby, the fact the World Cup's going there in I think 10 years or so. What's your view on America? Can rugby crack America like the Beatles cracked it or, or do they fail? What do you think? Yeah, it's it's a really tricky one. I was um, just harking to the wine business for a second that we've got an American football legend, the New England Patriots, who uh, is one of our winemakers. And um, 
throws the ball in the wrong direction, obviously. And he talked about the fact, you know, what do you make of the World Cup coming to the USA in, in, in some years' time? I said, well, I should be asking you that, not the other way around. Um, so rugby is popular. I toured um, California, um, uh, Sacramento, San Francisco, Los Angeles, you know, gosh, 40 years ago. And that probably wasn't a bad trip, was it? That was a pretty a pretty good trip. I mean, we played hard for for, for eighty minutes and then parties. Um, which is fine. That's the way he did things. I was actually funny enough. I was acting extra training because I was on the edge of the English squad at this point. And you know, they knew I was. And they said, "Listen, Simon." And they could only ask me politely, obviously, because um, it was a business trip. I said, "Of course, I'll train hard, sir." Um, so I did do some extra sprinting, to be fair. Uh, but I, I was 22 that. and, you know, the sky was, uh, there was no limit to what I wanted and uh, the weather was great and the grounds were firm and everything else. So, um, it, you know, not, not a bad place to spend some weeks. The, the potential there, and I, I played my my opening game for England was against Canada and I played against the USA in the World Cup 91. But they've gone backwards since then because as the game went pro, of course, you know, it remained steadfastly amateur in the USA and that's just no place to be. So they've fallen back very, very sharply. Although their seventh team, of course, is outstanding. So it's different dynamic. You can work that out. But because they're, they're, they're so disparate in terms of where they play their sport, whether it's on pockets of the West Coast or little bits of the East Coast and almost nothing Midwest and some quite a lot South, um, you know, the, the, the uh, Major League Rugby or, you know, the, it's growing pains. And I know World Rugby want to grow it quite rightly over there. I mean, if they ever got it right, they'd win everything, wouldn't they? But, um, so I, I, the jury's out for me. I mean, they've gone out to the US and you know, Ireland played the All Blacks. Uh, they, you know, um, in Chicago, I think it was, and it was incredible. Everyone had great times. A one-off kind of novelty fixture. The Premiership have gone over there a couple of times. It's not been so good. So I just think it's such a hard nut to crack. Um, I, I can't give you an answer, but it, it feels it feels very tricky because. Um, Rugby, in that sense, is something of a niche sport. And and also because we have turned it into a 100-minute game with way too many stoppages, I think the American crowd would get bored. You know, because in American football, as I said, you know, the NFL at Wembley, wow, that passed so quickly because every moment there was a stop in play, there was something going on. And actually, it was really entertaining. Question that we we always do a sponsor question. Uh, our sponsor is Sports Digital, and we always make that about technology. What role do you think technology has? Particularly, say you're talking about the American fan that might be new to the game, or a younger crowd, kids who might be adopting rugby for the first time. What role does technology have? Do you think in rugby in the way that I think that some of the technology employed around cricket twenty odd years ago was game changing, and I think the game has been a huge beneficiary for some technology that's helped speed up and, and help understand and demystify some of the game. Do you think rugby is uh, due for a little bit of that? Every sport has it differently. I mean, I personally love the, um, you know, the appeal process in cricket. Uh, I do and do enjoy that. You know, the crowd really participates in that. And um, so I, I do think that's great. And obviously rugby's tried to do the same uh, in a way, but of course, start from a different point of discipline or, Inquiry and, and of course everything gets unpicked. I you know, spent five minutes um, the other uh, on, at the weekend working out whether the Argentinian um, tackler on Farrell had actually touched his fingernail on the way through. We we also had to endure that about fifty different angles, even to so whether the ball was spinning in one direction, it got accelerated, or you know that was just deeply boring. I know people like Wayne Barnes 
try to get beyond that and make quicker decisions. So I think technology in that sense has, whilst best intentions, you don't want to see a try school when it wasn't, as it were, has morphed into something else and they need to rein it back in fast, in my opinion. So technology goes to a certain point, but then it's the, the, the use of technology has actually taken away from the value. But I think in terms of the, um, there's two other bits, I guess, I'd, that come to mind immediately. One is on field, the technology of assessing um, players, um, particularly the, the mouth guard technology, which, uh, you know, assesses the type of hit that you've had because concussion is such a major issue. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But, um, you know, that that is a really good development. And I know that, uh, that they're expecting great things. And I say great things. They're expecting to be able to assess whether a player's taken a serious hit or not, which I think is really important, as opposed to kind of leave it to the player, as it were. Um, and other bits of technology that says the player's tired, I'm not so sure about that because, back to my point, you know, the player's tired, dig deeper. You know, it's kind of, it's a coach's let, oh, I took him off because he was maxing out or he kind of, he seemed dehydrated. Okay, well, give him some water then. I, I, so I'm a bit of a dinosaur when it comes to that. And I believe that a player should play out until they're, they're done. And of course, that comes back to the replacement um, ideas of, of reducing the number of replacements. The last well, I just think it's interesting, yeah. the technology thing. I totally agree that technology is fantastic if it's additive to any sport. So if rugby has a problem with speed te- decisions taking too long, I referees every angle being agonisingly poured over, no one wants to be wrong, you're killing the spectacle of the game. And so... I, I wrote a piece about sportable. They put a chip in the ball, as you will know. And there was some people who are very um, accommodating of it, other people saying, this is terrible, it's just going to make things slower. And for me, any of that kind of technology, if it makes the game quicker and better, then it's good. And if it isn't, technology for technology's sake, I just think has no place. And I think that is the biggest problem. Another quick question related, I guess, is because we're talking about injury, and and I you know I've seen the mouth guard stuff that seems to make a lot of sense. So the last thing you want is people to be injured, and we're getting now a lot of stories of former players who've been terribly injured and and, and concussion etc. That seems to be the biggest threat facing rugby of all. The game is a is a wonderful game to watch. It's a wonderful spectacle. It's very well played. The skill levels are astonishing. Do you think seven aside rugby is the panacea for that? Or do you think it's more about the 15-a-side game, as you were alluding to earlier, where perhaps the, the players are getting fitter, they're less big, just in terms of just trying to address that? Or there's always going to be an element of risk. It's a dangerous game, and you can't nanny state that out, or you can, but you'll lose rugby. Where are you on all of that? I think seven-a-side uh, is a pathway. It's a pathway, and it's an absolute game of enjoyment i mean um you know the, the circuit they've created and the i never played in the hong kong sevens unfortunately it wasn't game wasn't advanced or flexible enough to allow people like me to play in the sevens um and, and by the time it did you know i was i'd retired but um lung bursting stuff you know it's um mm. uh how fit these guys are now it's incredible but so i think you can really develop your skills in sevens you have to and you've got to investigate space and understand how to run through it that that's what quickens the pulse for the spectator it's what they want to see they don't want to see people route one banging into other people and creating the big hit yeah okay the big hit it happened in any of our days 
the legal big hit is something to admire because it's a physical confrontation. The game is, but the hits have become bigger and they've become more discretionary and they've been driven by some of the laws that we've put in place. The jackal being one, you know, just let's get rid of it. Just get rid of it. You, you've got to. And I think therefore, um, going back to the, the question that we've got to, we've got to take the 15 aside game back to the time when tackles were low that the New Zealand rugby union have now mandated at schools level you could tackle the belly or below they mandated it and i think you know if if people tackled high in my day then that created a fight it was almost self regulating because it was the one thing yeah. you didn't do it created a fight so you'd head tackled there'd be a massive punch up no one would ever lay a punch because they weren't very good at punching and certainly i wouldn't um i ran away <laughs> most of the time but we said after you sir you know but the um, <laughs> but the, as a result, we we perhaps can't walk down the road very well, or you know we've got lots of scar tissue. But but we definitely don't have long term concussion impact. And I think a lot of the laws of the game just have to be changed. Whether it be the height of the tackle, whether it be the jackaling, um, just and and then you have to really um, push the message to people. You talk to Sean Edwards hardest rugby league player and many people's you know pound for pound um defense coach now for or probably the coach of, of the french team actually and i i had two years two years two hours in a toulouse airport with him he was going for an interview actually and i was obviously on my way to or to lose play we sat and we talked about this and he said he said simon how many yellow cards has my welsh team had in two years answer none how many yellow cards wow. has the french team had since he's taken over none he said, because I won't let them tackle high. There's no point. They'll hurt themselves. They'll hurt the opposition. Uh, it's not a good spectacle. It's not a good look. I want people to tackle low, knock their legs out. They can hit the ground. The game starts again. That's my philosophy. I don't think you need to go further than him. So, frankly, you know, make those changes and we'll all love it. Because if you, if you, and going back to the replacement side of things, if you take all this out, people debulk. And then they have to run for space. Yeah. And then you do get, I mean, that Argentinian try at the weekend, wow, how good was that? It was all yeah. sleight of hand, pace, angles of running, scoring in the corner. Yeah, they've got their fair share of hitmen, but wow, they can play, you know? And ultimately, that's what every rugby team should aspire to. You know a lot of the administrators in the sport, and you've played with a number of them as well. If you were elevated to the sort of Darth Vader of world, not even world rugby, just just the universe of rugby, and that you could be in charge of the empire, what two or three things, you know, now that you're not involved as directly as you were, and it's not political anymore. I mean, this is a game that is beloved to you. It's given you so many friendships, so much joy, memories, I, I can only imagine. What would you love to see happening? And I, we've talked about things on the field but maybe more off the field just to help the game along what what would be the kind of two or three things that you i know you've, you 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 published a sort of blueprint for where the game needs to go but distill that for us what do you think needs to happen to preserve and hopefully grow this great game i think that what's happened over the last two and a half decades and that's just professionalism and they're taking the people out of it because because the whole thing has been perpetuated over a period of time by a load of people um and of course it's people that Systems have been set up as we went along. So the first thing you do, in my opinion, is you get those leaders of the various divisions, championships, whatever they happen to be, the, the administrators, the, 
the players' side, the, the, in, in England's case, the Premiership, the Championship, you get them in the room and say, right, if we didn't have any of these structures, how would we do it? Come on, let's play a blue sky. And the, the owner's going to say, I put in 10 million, 12 million, 20 million. So I've, I've invested it. Yes, you have. And you absolutely will be acknowledged for that. But let's imagine how we could change things from here. And if you, and I've said to the RFU, and I've said it to them, I actually written an open letter so they know that I will talk about it going forward as I talk about it here. Um, why don't you lead? So I would say if you, we have to find leaders to change things. If you like to change things back. And though, and if you're the RFU, the biggest union in the world, then you can tell world rugby and you can bring it up as an emergency debate point and world rugby then get put on notice. And you need to get that bandwagon going of how to change things for the future. Every country operates differently. The Irish system is the best in the world. That's why they're the number one. I know that. I've been to Munster, Leinster, Connacht, Ulster, sat in front of the rugby union. They all sit around the same table, all of them. It doesn't happen in England. In France, they're incredibly together. You know, the leagues argue like crazy amongst themselves, but at the end of it, they all come in behind the vote and they follow it. And they're passionate and they love the game. So they can have fallen out with their union. It hasn't really mattered. They've got three professional divisions, but I said very different. So depends where you look. The Aussies are playing, you know, it's the fourth sport in Australia. So they've got their own challenges. So world rugby has to reconstruct itself to take, to look at the whole game and be prepared to make some difficult decisions. Unwind what you did before. So you know, the I, I'm, I'm talking about doing that through the RFU or through the English game or the appeal to the world game. And it's like, you know, how many more people have got to stand up and say they've got early onset dementia for world rugby to change? Because the school gate is the arbiter. The, the parents, the mothers won't let their children play the game. And it's the trickle down effect because you talk to schoolmasters. Um, and in the school's game, everyone apes and mimics the senior game. They do. So you change it from the top and it trickles down. Everyone changes. That's what has to happen. And if we don't do it, then the current in England, certainly participation rates down 30%. It's not just the pandemic. And people are sitting looking at it. And I've said to them, the board, the PGB, the RFU, the president, CEO, chairman, I've said, you have to change. And if you don't, we're going to have to call you out because there are plenty of people. Look at the, the recent months of, of footage of, of top people in the game, McGeekin and all the broadcasters, renowned ex-players. They're all calling for change and, and everyone's ignoring them. Why? I don't understand it. And ultimately, you know, administrators come and go. I'm not having a go to administrators here, but they're in the box seat. They will come and they will go. But the rest of us are left uh, to pick the game up and try and do something with it. So I don't think if we're being honest to ourselves, we can afford to let the administrators of the game just be inactive. Well, I hope very much, Simon, that uh, you will continue to be a, a voice. I have no doubt you will. Tell me, I know also with your primary business, the Sporting Wine Club, you're, you're very involved with Doddy Weir and his foundation. Tell us just in closing a little bit about that. Doddy is someone, when I started my career in sponsorship, which was in the 90s, 
George Weir and I were, we were contemporaries, a little taller than me. He played for Scotland. I provided them whiskey. It was a perfect thing. One of the nicest men ever to have really pulled on any shirt for rugby. One of the great guys. Tell me what you're doing with him as he faces and has been facing so heroically MND. Yeah, absolutely. Doddy's a great mate of mine. And uh, obviously second row forwards and centres didn't cross paths that much back in the day, but we had a few <laughs> couple of years against each other. And I think we came out even on, on the scoreline. So yeah, when I set up Sporting Wine, which very simply, because it's relevant, is it's, um, wine made by winemakers with a sporting connection, authentic sporting connection, and made and bottled on the estate. That's the kind of the, the wine club that, that I founded. And I was approached by Kenny Logan uh, a couple of years ago, saying, look, we really want to continue to help Doddy through the foundation, and we thought it'd be a wonderful idea to create a wine. So we created the Doddy, the Doddy 5, is his shirt number and five great varieties made for him by our original sporting winemaker Skulk Berger who played for Springboks in the 80s his son won the World Cup and so Skulk through the teeth of the pandemic fire on the farm shut down of agriculture the palm and all the rest of you wouldn't believe it made this incredible wine and um, so we eventually brought over a couple of thousand cases of it and of every bottle his shirt number we gave to the foundation, so five pounds per bottle, which is not a meaningless number, um, and it's a twenty pound bottle of wine. So, it was. It's been a very emotional trip because the number of people who've stepped up and bought that, the, the cases of wine, because they've got relatives with MND, they want to support. My name's Doddy Foundation. Um, they know that by lifting a glass of that wine, um, they're in support, and it's an awareness raising thing as well. You know, it, it's been a, an incredible. And, and to, to listen to Doddy say what a wonderful glass of wine it is really you know Skulkberg was quite emotional about it because of course just under Westhazen died of MND he was a great friend of the Berger family so for him it was very personal and I think that's what rugby does it brings people together and in this case it, the wine was the currency not necessarily going to advise all school kids and people to drink lots of wine but um this was a great moment and I think it it's provided a greater purpose for what we were doing and is there a way that the listeners of Are You Not Entertained, is there any wine left? And what can they do to try and secure bottles of it? Well, so we we thought, you know, um, one good thing, um, we, we made 1,400 cases and then we did another 600. We've got 150 cases of wine left only. We're probably not going to do it again. So, you know, sportingwineclub.com, you can still openly buy it, but I'm going to, I'm going to probably draw a line and reserve the last, x number i don't know but then of course with the terrible news of rob burrow uh rob and doddy combined and we've got the seven and five which is their joint shirt numbers charity gin so if the wine's from now you can drink the gin which is um a, a combined effort by rob burrow and uh and doddy and that's seven pounds per bottle and now we've the third one is we've created a doddy cap classic sparkling which skulk has already done that's uh, on the water tomorrow, actually, from Cape Town, arriving in the UK in a few weeks' time, hopefully in time for Christmas. Again, that's going to raise incredible awareness. We've had the news on Ed Slater, um, who sadly has got MND, and you know they kind of they haven't called a connection between this and and the game of rugby. And and frankly, you know I'm I'm sure that that's not necessarily relevant. But the fact is. They're part of the rugby family and anything we can do to help raise money and awareness, um, we will keep doing. And I think um, 
all of our winemakers care about that sort of thing. Well, it's wonderful what you're doing. And I hope that maybe we'll be able to shift the last dregs through this podcast. And I'm delighted to support that. Simon, it's wonderful to have you on the show. I've taken up so much of your time. It's probably time for a glass of wine, given that it's uh, well past uh, gin o'clock for for both of us. Um, Thank you for coming and sharing. I've always felt that you're someone who's worth listening to about this wonderful sport of, of ours, of rugby, which I think my view as I sum up is, it does have a great future, but it cannot rest on its laurels. And therefore, people like you pushing away, talking to the people you know is um, incredibly important right now. And and thank you for sharing your thoughts with Are You Not Entertained? Charles, it's been an absolute privilege to be on the show. Thank you very much. Well, it's um, always fantastic to hear from experts. And there are a few experts, I think, in sport who can genuinely lay claim to have been involved in every part of the sport from finance, from playing at the top level, from being a club person, and also being a a first-class cricketer, who knew? Such talent and and a lovely guy. I've missed my groundsman. It's been uh, quieter for me. I normally expect to hear a Roger rant. They haven't had a Roger rant or the calm majesty of Grant Williams, but I've tried my very best to make this groundsman uh, as best it could be. You can follow this fine podcast on our Twitter handle, which is uh, entertained are and you can follow me Giles Morgan at Giles Morgan 71 thanks again to Sports Digital for their support of the groundsman and we look forward very much to the next show and seeing you soon